We're going to be taking a look this morning at the Gospel of John. And uh, coming up here into the fourth chapter, into one of what is maybe the most uh, iconic interactions, conversations that someone has with Jesus. But as we'll see shortly, it's it's an odd couple. It's not the conversation you would expect Jesus to be having. So read with me, follow along with me as I read from the Gospel of John, the fourth chapter, starting in verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food, and the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you are with uh, now is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who has told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. But meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. 
But he said to them, I have food that you do not know about. So the, the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say yet, uh, there are four yet months, <laughs> there are yet four months, then comes a harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor." And many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. And so when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Join with me in prayer. Father, as you sat by that well so many years ago, Lord, as you saw this woman approaching, this woman approaching you, Lord, as you looked at her and you responded to her, Lord, I pray that we, as we gather here this morning, would hear your words. Lord, that we would hear the things that you said to her and realize that the same grace, the same love, the same pleasure that you took in her, Lord, you extend to us. Lord, I pray that we would see and understand and know that you are the God who loves us and who welcomes us into your presence. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know if you have ever been in a situation where you found yourself hiding in a bathroom stall, praying that no one comes in and finds you there. I don't know if you've ever been in a place where you were hiding in the place and, and desperately trying to deal with the embarrassment and shame and just horrified look on your face at what just happened in your life. But when I was, uh, I guess I was 16 years old, and I was uh, playing soccer, and uh, during practice, a, a reality set upon me that I had a, a pressing need to find a restroom. Um, but uh, I thought, I can make it. I started all serious now. I'm, I'm telling you a, a funny story, so you can laugh along with me here. Okay. Uh, there is a, a, a pressing need to find a bathroom, uh, but I can hold it. I can make it to the end of this practice, right? And so the practice end time comes, and, and then coach says, get on the line, right? Which if, if you've been an athlete before, you know that uh, getting on the line means that you are about to run sprints, to finish up practice, to finish your conditioning. And uh, I'll just cut to the chase. Uh, my bathroom issue didn't make it to the bathroom exactly. It didn't even make it off the field exactly. 
there on the field when I didn't want to look weak for skipping out of the sprints. I became a fool. As quickly as I could, I, I ran and, and went back to the, to the, the school and found a, a locker room and found the last stall in the locker room thinking, surely I can hide here. Surely here I can clean myself up and wait for the rest of my teammates to get their gear and to go home so that I don't ever have to be seen again. Surely here is where I can be safe, safe with no one looking at me. And then to my horror, I hear uh, a, a couple of teammates laughing outside the door of the locker room. And as the door opens up into the locker room, I, I sat in this stall and cringed as I heard the laughter and I heard the jokes and I heard my name and I wanted to disappear off the face of the planet. And then behind them, I, I heard one of my other teammates, and, and we'll call him We'll call him Nick. Nick was, I don't even know how to describe him. He was, he was kind of the class clown, but he was a, a popular class clown, right? He was the, the goofy guy. He was the guy who could run the room with his jokes. He was the guy who, who loved to get a laugh from the people. And I hear his voice, and I thought, oh, no, how long will I have to endure this? It was the kind of situation that could have given him the material he needed for a hundred days of laughter. The next morning, he could have gone to school and had 200 people to entertain with the story of what happened on the field that day. But when he came into that room and when he heard what my teammates were saying about me, he cut them off. And I don't honestly can't for the life of me remember the words that he used but my heart remembers their gist as he tore into them. How dare you make fun of him? How dare you speak of him? If I hear you say that again, and then he said something that wasn't so nice to them, right? And I remember sitting there clenched and afraid that someone was going to find me. And then I hear the words of my teammates saying, if you mess with him, you're messing with me. And in that moment, I received a, a wave of grace that my little teenage brain could hardly comprehend. There in that moment, in my lowest moment of life to that date probably, the lowest moment of what my emotions could handle, here came Nick, and Nick said, my reputation is staked to your reputation. He didn't know I was in there. He didn't know I was hiding in that bathroom stall. He didn't know what those words would mean to me. But it was in that moment that I experienced a grace that I had never seen before. It was the grace that, that once they left the locker room allowed me to say, maybe, just maybe, I can actually show up at school again tomorrow. Maybe, just maybe, this isn't the end of life as I know it. We come to a text where Jesus uh, runs into a woman. It appears almost uh, like circumstantial uh, running, an accident of, of 
timing and place, being in the right place at the right time. And yet this woman who comes and approaches Jesus as he sits by this well, we quickly learned is, is a woman who has become used to rejection. Used to rejection at least at the hands or in the presence of a, of a Jewish man. And yet in this interaction that she most surely would have approached with apprehension and doubt and wishing that she could invisibly disappear from his presence, she leaves that day refreshed by waters of grace washing over her like a cold glass of water on a hot day. And so I want to look this morning at three particular graces, three particular ways that Jesus speaks with, ministers to, engages with this woman, ways that give her an overwhelming flood of his grace. The first grace I want us to look at this morning is the grace of God's welcome. See, she had good reason to expect to be rejected by this Jewish man. And, and every reason to think that this Jewish man would just look off into the distance and ignore her presence there that day. And there's a, a number of reasons, right? The first, and you can hear it in the disciples' words. The disciples marveled in verse 27 that he was talking with a woman. See, she had reason to suspect that he would reject a conversation with her because she was, in fact, the wrong gender. A single man and a single woman speaking at a well was a scandalous territory to have. He would surely ignore her, surely move on his way. He would surely think very, very little of her. She came to that well that day and, and immediately realized that she was the wrong race. Right? You can hear it in her response when Jesus says to her, can I have a, a cup of water? And she goes, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews and Samaritans, they don't play. Right? There was a, a racial tension here that you could cut through with a knife. The Samaritans were, were people who uh, were mixed, for some uh, lineage from the Jewish and some lineage from the Canaanite peoples and from uh, the, the greater Roman Empire, people who had uh, a, a mixed ethnicity and a people who had, to add to it, a mixed religion. See, she knows as this Jew comes up to her that this Jew knows and thinks of her as being wrong, being a heretic. That this Jew would come up to her and he would look at her and say, you have misrepresented God, you have misrepresented truth, you have worshipped God in all the wrong ways, and therefore this Jew would want nothing to do with her, surely. But as we find out in the story, she had another reason to expect to be rejected by this Jewish man sitting by the well that day. And that was is because she had the wrong morals. Five husbands and now a sixth man whom she wasn't married. It didn't matter whether she was a Samaritan or a Jew. She knew this to be not the way she was supposed to be. 
it was almost like, you, you remember like Mad Libs as a kid, you fill them out, it's like, what's a noun? And, you know, and, and someone just spouts off a random noun and, and, and like, uh, what's an adjective? What's a verb? And you, and you fill in these blanks into this paragraph and it makes this like ludicrously funny uh, little paragraph, right? It, it's nonsensical almost. And here it's almost like, uh, you almost feel like it's like, okay, name something that's wrong with a person to a Jew. And they, they spouted off four or five factors that would, that would make somebody completely uh, untenable as a conversation partner, somebody untenable to be present with, untenable to love. And, and at the end of the story, your ridiculous paragraph is this woman. But we find out not only does she, would she expect to be rejected by this Jewish man sitting by the well, but she expected to be rejected by him because she had been rejected by her own people. It's a curious thing for her to come to the well in the sixth hour, and it's even more curious for her to come to the well alone. Going to the well to receive the water was the women's work that they did together. They joined together, and, and in the morning and in the evening, they would go as a cohort, kind of like they go to the bathroom at restaurants, right? They go together. They stick together, and here this woman was alone. And we don't know why. We assume, and, and people often talk about, that it's, it's her history with men that would make her an outcast. We don't know why, but we do know that she was alone when normally she would be with peers. A woman who knew she would be rejected by this Jew because uh, she had been rejected by men who called her husband. You know, we often look at this text and we look at, oh, she's been married five times and here she's with uh, another man. And we think, well, what a... What this woman, this, this, uh, this um, overly sexual woman, this, this woman who has played and jumped from marriage to marriage to marriage, but you're forgetting that in the first century, women didn't have the chance to divorce their husbands. If a woman was divorced, it was because her husband had sent her away. Time after time after time, whether through fault of her own or through the fault of the men, she had been with a man who knew her physically. She had revealed herself to him spiritually, emotionally, and five times the men had looked at her and said, I don't want you anymore. I don't know what that kind of rejection feels like. My brain can't comprehend the kind of uh, pain and shame that those factors would play on a woman. How it would adjust her psyche or how she would adjust her relationships with other human beings. But what I do know is that she is a place of parched land desperately needing water of God's grace. And yet we see before she has even responded to Jesus, before she even knows who Jesus is, Jesus approaches her. Jesus speaks to her. Jesus welcomes her into conversation, into a conversation that was meant to be an engagement, into an engagement that was meant to bring him into his community of true worshipers. God gives her the grace of his welcome when she was still knee-deep in her sin and hiding in the bathroom stall from the shame and worry. 
if we were to swap stories around this room, I would have a venture to guess that many of us know something of the weight of rejection. We know something of the weight of, of failure. We know something of the, the weight of being hated or being disliked or being mocked or perhaps worse of all of, of being ignored completely. And it is here in this text, as we sit in the place of this woman, that we can see and that we can remember and that we can know that Jesus comes and he enters into our story. And before we have said or done anything good, he has looked at us and says, I want to be with you. A grace, a wave of grace that brings life to the weary. A wave of grace that when we want to be seen by no one because our shame is so thick, Jesus says, I see you and I want you to be with me. But he doesn't just give her the grace of his welcome. He gives her the grace of God's truth. Now, we often talk about uh, truth and grace like they're opposites, like they're, they're things that are are. are the magnetic fields that pull us in different ways, that, that you have truth or grace, or, or perhaps you need both of those two things, truth and grace together. But yet in this passage, there's this curious phenomenon. And I think this phenomenon tells us that truth is in its very essence a grace. It's a grace if the person can receive it. You see, this funny thing happens. Jesus engages this woman in this funny conversation, and then he does a really awkward thing, right? They're talking, and they're chatting about this water, and she thinks they're talking about actual water, and he thinks that they're talking about the Holy Spirit and the life of being known by God uh, above. And then he turns to her, and he says, go call your husband. Jesus, knowing full well who this woman was and knowing full well what her story is, Jesus, in the middle of this conversation, calls her out on the place of her shame, the place of her rejection, the place of her sin as she uh, is with this man that she does not know. He does more than that, though. You look here at this um, verse 22. Jesus uh, in the middle of this sweet and gracious embrace, calls her out on the heresy of the Samaritans, of this synchronistic religion. And he says, look, you Samaritans worship what you don't know. And we Jews worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. This is the truth. The truth is, is that the Jews have been covenanted by God to be his kingdom in the world. And the truth is, is that God uh, does intend for the world to know about him through the Jews. You have abandoned the Jews and thus you have abandoned the truth. Jesus kind of lays it on pretty heavy here. He lays it on pretty thick. He tells her, you are a sinner. He tells her, you are a heretic. But here's the most fascinating part of this whole passage to me is that at the end of the story, when the woman goes away in joy and excitement, what is it that she says to her, her friends? 
What is it that she says to her neighbors? What is it that she says about Jesus? She says, he is a man who has told me everything I have ever done. He is the one who can tell me just how shameful uh, I am, just how sinful I am. Now, I don't know if you've ever been called out on your sin or on your shame, but I can tell you uh, to, to highlight the ludicrousness of this, right? Like, I, I didn't leave the bathroom stall that day being like, hey, look, I'm a pants pooper, right? That wasn't the claim of the identity. It wasn't, I know how sweet this is because I'm really screwed up. And yet this woman, when she goes to tell her friends and her neighbors and her family, he says, he has looked at me and he has seen the worst. He's told me everything that I'd ever done. But she was able to receive this truth as a grace because she, she understood the, 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 the grace of his welcome, right? The grace of his welcome, the grace of his embrace has put her in a place where she understands this guy is for me. This guy wants what is good for me. Because as she, Jesus uh, in this conversation, as we look at, at when he brings up these men, this, this parade of men, this parade of, of marriages that has gone around like a carousel, you realize that, that Jesus is making the analogy that your trips to the altar, your trips to go find a, a man, to go find a substance, to go find protection, to go find embrace and care you you go on those like you go for a trip to the well in the same manner that you drink water and then a few hours later you're thirsty again you are on a revolving task of trying to find acceptance trying to find a loving kindness trying to find wholeness and fulfillment by chasing after one man after another man after another man and if he won't take you in marriage it doesn't matter you'll take him anyway because you're so desperate you're so thirsty for that love and acceptance and Jesus points this out not to be cruel, not to rub it in her face of her shame, but he points it out because he says, look, like if you're trying to get to the pyramid and you're driving east on Union, it ain't going to work. Right? You can, you can become upset with that and be like, oh, yeah, I, I know. I was uh, just taking a trip out to Highland real quick. Right? Or you can acknowledge and say, oh, thank you. Thank you for telling me. Thank you for pointing me in the right direction. Thank you for caring enough to point me where I needed to go. See, the reality of sin is that this is a, a, a quote that I'm not even sure who said it because I've seen it quoted by, to different people. Right? But the reality of sin is that sin will take you farther than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay, and it will cost you more than you want to pay. The sin, this desire for the affection, this desire to be known has taken this woman and it has put her on a, 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 a carousel of coming back time and time again to the same place. And yet Jesus comes to her and he points out, he turns the spotlight on 
her brokenness. And he puts it on there because it is in the truth that there is freedom. Here's another quote from Tim Keller. Jesus may ask of you far more than you had previously planned to give. But he can give to you infinitely more than you ever dared ask or think. It's the nature of grace that it will reveal things in you that you would rather no one take a look at, that you would rather not be known by, and yet, in that grace, it turns you into a person who can say, I am broken. I'm mixed up. I thought I was pursuing a good when, in fact, I was slowly killing myself. Because this woman had been welcomed in her shame, she can receive the truth that Jesus gives her as a grace and not as an attack again. So Jesus gives her the truth, the grace of his welcome. He gives her the, the grace of his truth. But here at the end, we get a little, a little other picture, a, a grace that you and I get to partake of, but this woman didn't get to know about. And it's this grace of knowing God's delight. You see, a lot of times when we talk about salvation or when we even talk about God, we, we, we kind of couch it like, well, uh, God, Jesus died on the cross, so he has to forgive me of my sins. Right? We, we use uh, the language, the theological language that's often used is this, is this heartless transaction that has occurred. Right? We, we think of Jesus and be like, well, he, he has to forgive me. I mean, he's like my dad, right? We think about life of the faith, and yet we think of God as, as some sort of obligation or that he might maybe love us but not really like us. But yet we see in this text that after this woman leaves, in this little paragraph starting in chapter in verse 31, excuse me, that Jesus, who, remember, had come to this well completely worn out. Verse 6 tells us that he was wearied from his travel. He's needing food and he's needing water and he is physically in a broken down place. But after he has met, after he is engaged, after he has seen this woman in her lowest estate, he's like giddy. I can't think of a, of a better word, right? The disciples come back and like, hey, we got some food. Here, eat some food. Nourish yourself. Be strengthened. And, and, and Jesus is like on an emotional cloud nine, right? You know when you've been so excited about something that like you've lost your appetite. You're so excited about something that you don't, you're like, oh, I never ate lunch. Hey, why? I'm so excited and thrilled about this. Who can pause at this moment to think about food and water? Jesus, looking at this woman in her deepest shame, this woman in the most ostracized place in society, in this place that the prejudices of the day would tell him, you have nothing to do with her. It is her. It is her story. It is the fact that, that she wants to be in relationship with him that has him on such a cloud nine that he refuses something to eat. And his disciples come and as they bring him food and as he refuses it, he says, no, no, no. 
Look at these fields that are white with harvest. It's like a kid that's been in a candy store, right? And he's gotten to pick from this counter and this counter and this counter. And he says, give me more. Right, this was so beautiful and so wonderful. And as, as he uses the word, that, that there is rejoicing here, that he wants more. He wants to know more of the brokenness. He wants to know more of the pain. He wants to know more of people who can be brought into his worshiping family, the new kingdom of those who worship God in spirit and in truth. God does not approach this sinner in her shame out of obligation, but out of joy, out of his delight in her. The next day, uh, when I went to school after the incident, uh, it was an excruciating, painful day for me. Every sideways glance, right, Every I, I can distinctly sitting... Uh, remember sitting in the choir room, sitting in the back row, uh, why I was in choir, that's a whole other story, but just feeling like the eyes of the world were upon me, that every laugh was directed my way. But you know, the funny thing is, is that as I sat there, and I had friends that told me, hang in there, just a day or two, and it'll all be over, right? My mom, the night before, had been like, you're perfect and I love you and don't worry about it, right? But as I went to school that next day and I felt the pains of the stairs, whether they were thinking about me or not, I don't know, but I felt like they were condemning me. And what ran through my brain was not my mom who would love me no matter what. It wasn't my friends who had given me uh, quaint assurances that it couldn't have been that bad. It's not that big of a deal. What ran through my brain was Nick, because Nick had seen just how bad it was. Nick was close enough to have smelled the stink and, and to have witnessed the disgust. Nick was close enough and had every reason to push me away and to push me to the corner of his life. But Nick saw who I was in that moment, and he pulled near. As we come to this text, we see a Jesus who sees the brokenness, who sees the shame, and he draws near. Many of us, we think of God like he's joining in on the snickering, like he's joining in on the pointing, like he's joining in in the stairs when it's actually just the opposite. Jesus is the one who sees our shame and welcomes us in because of it, because he knows that those who are thirsty need water. And he knows that in him is a water that can lead to a life abundant, a life eternal, a life that the gospel of John will struggle with adjectives to be able to describe just how fulfilling and quenching and beautiful this life is when the spirit of God dwells with man. So as we sit here this morning, let us be like this woman. Be like this woman who are glad to raise our hands and be like God has known everything I have ever done. And he has welcomed me in this midst. Could this be the savior of the world? Pray with me. Father, we come this morning and Lord, we like to think that 
uh, we're the ones who have it together. We like to think that, that people would hold us in high esteem, that they would hold our thoughts, that they would hold our life, that they would be well, thought well of. And so, God, we try to hide in the corners the things that bring us shame and darkness and fear. And yet, God, you invite us to know that there is freedom in the light, freedom in knowing that we are sinners because it is sinners who have us, God, who saves them. Bring us to confession, Lord. Bring us to your table. Lord, by your Holy Spirit, bring us to you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.